Uh, the reading this morning is from Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. If you've got a church Bible, it's right at the end of page 1017. The uh, passage is entitled, Marriage of the Resurrection. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Do take your seats, and uh, if you've closed your Bibles, pick them up again, open them up again to that bit in Mark chapter 12. Uh, that's what we're going to focus on now. In terms of getting to the end of our lives, getting to uh, heaven and being able to look back and see his goodness to us, we've just been singing about that. We need to be trusting him day by day on the way to get there. As we hear his word, we need to be responding in faith. So uh, I'm going to pray for us now that we would respond in faith to what we hear now. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege of hearing your words. Thank you that we have heard it as we've had it read to us. I pray that you'd help me now to faithfully explain it and encourage us to live in light of it. Please would you help us all to listen and be ready to hear and accept the challenge of Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, in old uh, kung fu movies, um, you would often get the lone hero breaking into the enemy's base and then when he arrives they don't sort of go oh nice to see you they tend to jump out with a barrage of ninjas that sort of thing wave after wave of henchmen will come and be sent out to do battle with this person trying to prevent him from reaching the big boss at the end and you sort of see this person is Bruce Lee or whoever it is and uh, he's one man against an army of fighters but he always makes it through to the end doesn't he uh, well, I was, I was reminded of that sort of thing when reading through this section of Mark's Gospel again. And maybe that says more about how my brain works, I don't know. But you see Jesus here, after lots of skirmishes he's had with the religious leaders over the previous couple of years, he now comes to their HQ, if you like. He comes to Jerusalem, he comes to its temple. And as soon as he arrives, there's just an explosion I imagine uh, if it was a Kung Fu movie, the, the furniture would have been karate chopped in half. Instead, Jesus flips the tables over because he's saying to them, look, this is unacceptable. The way you are living, the way you're running the temple, the way you're running your lives, that is not what God wants. This is not how he intended it, especially you religious leaders. 
And so he calls them to listen to him, to turn back, to seek to follow God rightly. And all the onlookers see Jesus doing this, hear what he's saying, they're absolutely amazed. The religious leaders don't appreciate it. They don't like his criticism, they don't like him challenging their authority, and so he's got to go. And so they unleash the henchmen, if you like. They all come after him in wave after wave. They're trying to turn everyone against him. They're trying to get him arrested. They're trying ultimately to kill him. So wave after wave of people come in uh, to take him down, different groups within their leadership. And they've all got different weapons, if you like, different techniques. So in chapter 11, verse 28, you get the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and they come in with an official kind of challenge to say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come here and do this? And he deals with all of that single-handed. Then chapter 12, verse 14, uh, that was last week we looked at that. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they come out uh, to, to try and trap him with a question about taxes. This one, they're going to say, well, should we pay our taxes? Should we not pay our taxes? Whatever you say, I'm going to land you in trouble. But Jesus, again, very deftly outsmarts them. And before he's had a minute to catch his breath, another group leap out to have a pop at him. And this time it's the Sadducees. These are intellectual heavyweights. How is he going to cope with these people as they come to attack? Their mode of attack is to ask a ridiculous question. They're trying to ask a ridiculous question. Now, that might not seem too deadly an approach, but if you're a political interviewer, you know you can really trip somebody up with a, 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 a good question that kind of undercuts them and makes them seem silly. Their question is ridiculous in that it is in itself a ridiculous question. It's a stupid question. But also, it's designed to make Jesus look ridiculous. The whole point of this is to make Jesus look silly. Now, I often say when I'm talking to people who aren't Christians, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's only stupid answers. And, and that is true if you've got a genuine question. There's no shame in us not knowing something. We ask questions. If you've got questions, let's ask them. But the Sadducees are not genuine inquirers. They don't want answers. Instead, they pose what they think is a very clever question to make Jesus look stupid. And that's not okay. So they start off by citing a biblical principle. So verse 19, take a look at that. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now that's an idea from Deuteronomy 25. It's, it's unfamiliar with us today. But the gist of it was that in Old Testament Israel, each family would have a portion of the land that would be passed on to the next generation. If you died without children, you'd have nobody to pass it on to. What would happen then? Well, it would go to the next um, sibling down. this. But what if you've got married now, so she kind of shares in that, but then there's nobody for them to pass that on to. Now that she's got it, who does it go to? It's a bit of a mess. Uh, and so the idea was... Uh, to stop your legacy, your inheritance, your name just being gone, and to protect this widow who would now be left with nothing, there was this principle called uh, leveret marriage. The idea is a brother or a close relative of the dead man could marry the widow. Neither side had to do it. It was just encouraged. 
And if this new couple had children, then the first one would count as belonging to the original husband. Does that make sense? So in terms of inheritance and carrying on the family name, their first child officially belongs to the first husband. It's, it's a complicated thing. If you know the book of Ruth, that's what's going on there with Boaz coming in as a, a kinsman redeemer, that kind of thing. Anyway, it sounds like a bit of a strange idea to us. It is something similar to this happens around the world, actually, still to this day. But it's trying to deal with the problem of death. When that comes in and messes things up, how can we deal with that? And this was just one way of trying to protect people in that situation. The Sadducees, however, are not trying to solve any problems. They're trying to make problems. So they take that principle and then create this ridiculous scenario to try and bamboozle Jesus. They say, verse 20, Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Now that's tragic, isn't it? What a tragic situation. What a completely unlikely situation as well. This is one bride for seven brothers, that kind of thing. Each one, in turn, marries this poor woman and then dies. She probably stopped putting the wedding dress away between ceremonies. If you were brother number seven... You'd be getting a little bit nervous, wouldn't you? Um, It's a really ridiculous scenario, but then it's finished off with a ridiculous question in verse 23. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? They're saying, after death, when we all rise again in the new creation, which of the brothers will she be married to? Ha, ha, ha. I've got you there, haven't I? Now, it is a ridiculous question for three reasons, I think. First of all, because of the outlandish kind of setup with these seven consecutive deaths. I know sometimes you need to make, sort of take something to the extreme to make a point, but it is a bit silly. Uh, Second, it's ridiculous in that it is so easily answered. We'll see how Jesus quickly goes, and it's obvious, and deals with it. But the third way, the most obvious way it's ridiculous, is if you look up in verse 18. Listen to how Mark introduces this group. It says, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. See, the whole thing is, they don't even believe their own objection. <laughs> it's just so cynical, isn't it? They come up with this whole thing, and they think it's ridiculous. The Sadducees were a powerful group within Judaism. They were a big part of the Sanhedrin or the council. They were wealthy, very often upper class, well-educated and very, very sceptical. They were theologically liberal. There was lots of stuff they didn't believe. So uh, they thought that it was wrong to do something just for the reward you'll get out of it. A lot of people think that today. They would say, you know, don't do it just for the reward. But then that eventually came to mean there won't be a reward. There won't be anything after death for God's people. You live, you die, that's it. So that kind of explains the old children's song, you know, the one, I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're just sad, you see, you know that one? And that's why they'd be sad because they've got no future hope. You die, you're dead, end of. So it's very, very this world focused. You can see why these people were often very rich and luxurious and that kind of thing because it was all about this world. And so, of course, they're going to be very concerned about a man's this world inheritance being passed on to the next generation because that's all we've got. 
That is it. There's no hell below us, above us only sky. They didn't believe in future resurrection. So the whole question's ridiculous. They didn't want to know the answer because they think they already know it. They say, whose wife will she be? Nobody's, because it's not going to happen. The whole thing is trying to show Jesus up. Jesus, who clearly believed in a future for God's people beyond death. Jesus, who taught about future judgment, who taught about life beyond the grave, who talked about his own coming resurrection. And these people say, what a ridiculous idea that is. Can you see how easily we can come up with a scenario that just shows how stupid that is, how nonsensical it is? Their story, I think, is ridiculous on purpose because they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to say, look, if we get rid of all this teaching about life beyond this world, then we can ignore his claims to be our judge. We can ignore his claims to be the one who's going to bring in God's coming kingdom. And so they sort of poo-poo the whole thing. They go, well, if the resurrection's true, just look at how it ties you in knots with this woman. And she marries this one and that one and the other one. They get to heaven and what a mess. See, isn't it just much more sense to just forget the whole thing? It's actually quite a modern approach. I'm sure we all know people like this, people who are very well-read and very sophisticated and very sceptical. You don't really believe all of that, do you? I wanted to pick holes in things. I used to do lots of um, guerrilla Christian events uh, uh, on university campuses. People could come and ask any question they like. I used to really enjoy it, to be honest. Um, but there'd always be somebody there with aggressive questions. People who weren't there to debate or learn anything or say, I'm actually interested in what you have to say about this. It was just an opportunity for them to grandstand, if you like. It's, their questions were basically variations of, I am an enlightened follower of the science who trusts facts. You are an imbecile who believes fairy tales. Discuss. That was basically what their questions would often be. And the idea was, I can make you and Jesus seem ridiculous, and then I can safely ignore you. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it may be that there are questions you have that you need to be answered. And that's great. Let's get those questions answered. There are, there are answers out there. But sometimes, if we're honest, some of our questions are just red herrings. It's not a live issue for us. It's a way of distracting. It's a way of pushing Jesus away. Let's make sure we're not doing that. The Sadducees, they come to Jesus with this ridiculous question. You can almost hear them kind of sniggering at their own point. They say, at the resurrection... <laughs> If there is such a thing as a resurrection. It, at the resurre- they think they've got him completely stumped. They've dumped this unanswerable objection on him and say, right, that's the final nail in the coffin on the resurrection. You can't beat that. But no, actually, you can't beat Jesus. You can't outwit him in a battle of wits. He is able to come through it. And he, and he comes through with a corrective answer. A corrective answer. Now, a corrective answer is when you respond by challenging the question. Somebody asks a question and you just respond by undercutting it. So someone says, why did you steal that cake? And you say, well, it was because... You say, I didn't. That's a stupid question because it's not true. I didn't do it. And Jesus does that here. He, He starts off just... They ask him a question and he spins it around on them and goes, what a stupid question. So have a look. The beginning and end... 
he starts his answer and ends his answer telling them they're wrong. So have a look to the end of verse 27. His final thing is, you're badly mistaken. And at the beginning, in verse 24, he's even more cutting. Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? It's quite a blistering attack. They ask him a question. He goes, you are so wrong, and this is why. You are rubbish at reading your Bibles, and you've got no idea about God. You are badly, badly mistaken. Now, that's not a very politically correct way of answering a question, is it? Uh, today, we'd want to go, well, that's a really great question. That's a really great question, and not a simple answer. You see, it sort of depends on this, but Jesus just goes, wrong, mistake, error. You don't know what you're talking about. Again, this is because they are hostile and they're not asking real questions. That's not his approach to people with genuine questions. But where it's coming like this, he wants to be very clear. Look, it is possible to be wrong about stuff like this. It isn't just my opinion, your opinion, who knows. Jesus corrects us when we're wrong. And with the Sadducees, he says, this is why you're wrong. He says, you're wrong because you don't know either God's word or God's power. And we're going to look at both those things uh, as Jesus addresses them. First, he explains how you don't know God's power You don't know God's power. That's why they were wrong about the resurrection and their ridiculous question. Because in their eyes, God's just not strong enough. The life after death sounds too much for him. You don't know God's power. But if God is God, why couldn't he raise people from death? Why wouldn't there be future hope? They limit him to what they could understand, and then when they can't understand it, say, see, it's not true. But God has power over death. They were thinking about resurrection life in the future, just like here and now, but going on forever. And if it was like that, that would lead to all sorts of problems. Who's married to who and all that sort of stuff. But of course God can sort issues like that out. He's powerful. It's a failure of imagination, really, to think life in eternity is going to be exactly the same as now, just longer. And so Jesus expands their understanding in, in verse 25. He says, it's not going to be like that in the future. In verse 25, he says, when the dead rise, notice when, not if, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The future won't be exactly the same as now. There won't be marriage then. Instead, Jesus says, we'll be like the angels. Now, that raises all sorts of things. In what way? What does that mean? Uh, well, in the parallel passage to this in Luke 20, he spells it out. He says, they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So this isn't about growing wings or anything else we might imagine to be angelic. He's saying that we're going to enjoy a new quality of life free from death completely. And of course, in a world like that, without death, things are going to be different. There won't be new children needing to be born. Everyone who's going to be there will be there. So we won't need procreation or or nuclear families for raising children. We'll all be family together. And we'll be satisfied as we are. There won't be any more loneliness. There won't be any hardships to endure. There won't be any sexual temptation. All those kinds of problems which marriage is in part designed to help with. All our needs for companionship and intimacy are going to be met fully 
at last for everybody. So if we never marry in this life, we are not going to miss out. We will be utterly fulfilled in perfect relationships forever. And those in unhappy marriages now are not going to suddenly get there and go, oh, wow, I'm stuck like this forever. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. It is only till death us do part. But for those of us in very happy marriages, we might struggle a bit with this idea. The thought of not being married to our spouse for eternity might make us sad. And in a way, that's totally understandable. It's a good thing to want good things to last. But we should be reassured the future God has planned is not going to be the same as now because it is going to be better. It will be better. Marriage is going to be replaced with better, deeper relationships, ones that won't be cut short ever again. Now, I think there's every reason to believe we will know each other. We will recognize each other. We will remember our old life, be reunited with believers that we loved. But that won't be the focus. Like the angels are now, we'll be completely caught up with God himself. And that's how it should be. Even our earthly marriages now are supposed to make us more like that already, pointing us to him. Because God didn't invent marriage to be ultimate or forever. He invented it to be a this-life blessing to point us to him. The great marriage between Jesus and the church, his bride, that is where everything is headed. So when that comes, the full reality of that relationship appears. We're not going to need the signpost to it. We're not going to want that. We're going to be completely satisfied with Jesus. And we will do that together alongside everybody else we love who loves him, including our spouse. We need to get our heads around this, that the future is going to be more, not less, than the present. But the Sadducees couldn't grasp that they, because they didn't know God's power. They couldn't imagine he would be able to make life more and better. They didn't believe in any of that. In fact, Acts 23 verse 8 tells us, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. So everything Jesus says here about being like the angels, they would have gone, oh, we don't actually believe that either, actually. Of course you don't. Of course you don't believe that because you don't know God's power. You can't imagine he could do things differently to how he always does things at the minute. You limit him. Your God is too small. And that is a problem behind a lot of objections to Christianity The view of God is just too small. Somebody says, I couldn't possibly believe in Jesus because miracles don't happen. Yes, they are unusual. That's sort of the point. But if God invented the world and invented laws of nature, then he's got the power to sometimes do things differently. But if we limit everything to only the things we can see and touch and personally experience, we're going to have a very impoverished view of the world, aren't we? If we deny the reality of heaven or the new creation because we think, oh, that just sounds too good to be true, that shows we don't know God or his power. We just can't imagine what he can do. When you think, think of how many crazily beautiful things there are on this planet in this life, 
all the flowers and animals and landscapes and things that we would write off as absolute fantasy if we'd only read about it, but it's true, you think, well, that's just the start. God could do infinitely more than we can even imagine. And yet we can write Jesus off because we say, well, I can't imagine him doing that. I can't imagine that. And even those of us who are believers sometimes have this same problem. We doubt him because we forget his power. We forget what he's capable of. We forget what he has done for us. We forget what he has promised to do for us. So death, for example, that is the great problem, isn't it? The Lord is going to sort that out. He raised Jesus. He will raise us as well. But we will always come unstuck when we don't know God's power. We don't really believe he is able to do these amazing things that he said he will do. But how will we come to know God and his power? How do we come to know these things? In the Bible. We know those things in God's word. And that leads to Jesus' next uh, sort of move against them in his corrective answer. He says, you don't know God's word. You don't know God's word. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? All of our errors and mistakes on things like this could be corrected. We just read our Bibles. See, Jesus isn't content to just answer their marriage query, which he's sort of already done. So we've gone, come on, it's going to be different. <laughs> it's going to be different in heaven. Uh, he wants to tackle how they're generally wrong about the resurrection as well. So he does it by taking them back to God's word. In verse 26, he says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? And he gives an example. And that's a great question, isn't it? Have you not read? This would have been a real sting for them because they, the Sadducees prided themselves in being no book but the Bible sort of people. They rejected the Pharisees' traditions. The Pharisees had all sorts of extra things. They would even go so far as to call it, you have the written Torah, and you have the oral Torah. You have the things that we've just sort of said about it. And they're equally important to each other. And the Sadducees said, no, not all those traditions, just the Bible. You think, oh, that sounds good. Jesus has that same approach. But even within the Bible, they had favorite bits. They rejected most of the Old Testament and focused just on the first five books, on the, on the Pentateuch, on the book of Moses. And so by Jesus saying this, have you not read the book of Moses? He's kind of goading them a little bit, saying, look, the rest of us have got 39 Old Testament books. You guys have only got five, and you don't seem to have read them. Come on, guys. You don't know God's word. There's lots of places in the Bible he could turn to to prove that it does teach resurrection after death. But he goes for a famous bit in one of the books they would have accepted already. He goes for Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. See, Jesus is so completely accepting of the Bible as God's word, that even little details about what tense a word is in are really, really important. So God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was their God, but obviously they're dead now. 
He's not like the woman from their story. I was the wife of brother number one. That was a long time ago now. No, death has not interrupted his relationship with people. I am their God. He's not the God of the dead, the God of the living. So there is a sense in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living, even though they'd been dead for centuries by the time of Moses. The Lord says, I am their God still, because there is life after death for his people. Those who trust in him, we enjoy a never-ending relationship with the Lord. And so the first thing God says when introducing himself to Moses, this is right after just saying the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Get ready for this. The first thing he then says is, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's just who God is. And if we're rejecting that, then we're rejecting the very basics. So the Sadducees are badly mistaken. They didn't know God's word, and so they didn't know God properly. And that's a challenge to us, isn't it? That we, we need to know our Bibles. We need to read our Bibles, because that is where, with the Spirit's help, we come to know God. His word is how we know the truth. His ways are going to seem ridiculous if we don't listen to him, we don't humbly learn from him in his words. So being here on a Sunday, listening to the sermon, that's a great start. Home groups, midweek, we dig into the word together. That's, that's a great thing to do. But it's not saying, well, I've done that, tick. It's saying, generally speaking, I want to be a person who is really getting stuck into the Bible, making sure we're reading it, letting God speak to us and encourage us and even challenge us very bluntly like Jesus does here. If you want to know the truth, you need to know the Bible. And if you want to understand the Bible, you need to stand under the Bible. Have it be your authority over you, not standing over it in judgment like the Sadducees who would pick and choose the bits they liked, the bits they didn't like. I don't listen to this bit, I do listen to that bit. We have the whole Bible and we need to let God speak through the whole of his words. These experts they were, the, the educated know-it-alls. They were beaten in a debate by a carpenter who just says to them, can't you read? <laughs> Have you not read? So again, if you, are, if you are not a Christian, have you got to grips with the Bible? Have you sat down as an adult to actually read it and find out what it says? Read it with, another, read it with a Christian or, or with a group of people? If you'd be interested in doing that, we would love to help you do that. We are not people who just naturally have all the answers. We've just read it. That's all it is. So if you want help with that, let's, let's do that. And as Christians, certainly we want to be knowing God's Word. The religious leaders did whatever they could to try and undermine them. And he says to them, look, you don't know God's power. You don't know God's word. It's a corrective to doubt, to skepticism, and to hopelessness as well. Because when we do know God's power, when we do know his word, we come to find life. We come to find that death is not the end. 
we come to find that by trusting in Jesus, we have an amazing, glorious future. We come to find a God we can trust, who is mighty and who didn't just bless Abraham and all of that law up until death and then he was done with them. He continues to be their God and will continue to be ours as well forever. If we would just hear him, stop trying to trip him up and trust him. Let's pray that we would do just that. Father, we are sorry for doubting you. We admit that we don't know your power or your words as well as we ought to. And even those things we do know, we, we very often fail to live on it and believe it. So please help us to trust in you. Please would you help us to look forward to this wonderful, glorious future you have planned for us. No matter how ridiculous others may make it seem, we know it is true. So we pray that you would help us. We pray particularly for any who don't currently know you and know they don't know you but would like to. We pray that you would be using these words of Jesus to not just challenge but to comfort that there is hope and truth to be found in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.